John chapter 12. This is, is what's referred to as Easter week. Today being what would be called Palm Sunday by many. And I thought it would be fitting if this year we took some time to walk through this last week of Jesus' life and make some observations and applications along the way. So this won't be exegesis on one small portion, but kind of trying to get a grasp of the breadth of that week and the events leading up to his death and, and all that that entailed. The way that he continued to minister in drawing away the attention, not only of his disciples, but of all those that he encountered away from the temporal and to fix their hearts and minds on, on the eternal, on that which was of utmost importance. We read here in chapter 12 and verse 1 that six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That would have been Friday, two days ago. He would have arrived in Bethany sometime during the day before dusk because at dusk the Sabbath would begin. The Sabbath would continue through Friday night, through Saturday morning into dusk on Saturday. And so sometime during the day on Friday, he arrived in Bethany and he shows up there and spends the better part of the last of his week in Bethany, staying there at night and then leaving early in the morning and going into Jerusalem, going to the temple to teach. And the events of the week are... Astounding as they are unpacked. What stands out at this moment is that in the last week of his life, and he's fully aware this is his last week, he knows the Passover is coming. He knows he will be crucified. That he doesn't spend it with his family. Instead, he's with his friends in Bethany. He's with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Mark will tell us he's with Simon, the leper. No doubt one that he had healed because he has dinner at his home, as we'll see later. And, and it was one that he had, had brought from his throes of death back to life. At this point, it appears that none of his brothers believed in him. We never do get a clear sense of when any of them are converted. We only know that after his resurrection, James begins to appear on the scene, and later we hear about Jude. None of his sisters are mentioned in this final week, although Mark 6, 3, because it uses the plural, lets us know that he had at least two, maybe more. The last week, and the last thing that we knew of Mary, as a matter of fact, we saw her with Jesus' brothers at a very uncomfortable place. It's recorded for us in Mark chapter 3 and verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, this was in Capernaum, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother? And my brothers. And then looking around at those who sat with him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother 
and my sister and my mother. Uh, four verses, or ten verses before that statement, it says that his mother and his brothers showed up outside the house because they thought he had lost his mind. And so in this last week, he doesn't go to seek comfort from his family. He goes to seek comfort from those who he shares spiritual truth with. The ones who are closest. Who knew better the sense of the resurrection than Lazarus and Mary and Martha? They were there when he raised Lazarus from the dead. They heard him say, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he goes to be with them. And there is such a clear picture there of what it means for us and for believers to cling to those who are their brothers and sisters in Christ, even above their natural family. That's often the case. This is where he chooses to go. And, and it points up probably for some of us here, and if not for some here, then for some that we know, the heartbreak of what it means perhaps to be married to a spouse who doesn't know Christ. In the dark moments... That's a terrible place to be. For those of you that are still young and unmarried, note this that's taking place in Jesus' life. When you're young and all of life is still ahead of you, and you say, oh, I'm going to choose someone to marry, it doesn't really matter. You don't think if they know Christ or if they're really walking with Him. They're good people. They're nice people. They're, they've, they've lived a decent life. But, but in the moments of death and in the moments of trial, if you can't share with that other individual the deepest truths of the reality of Christ, you put yourself in the most horrific spot and you see Christ at this moment saying, I need to be with these people. I can't even be with my own family. My face is set toward Jerusalem and I need those around me who, who are walking at least in some sense of who He is and the salvation that He's bringing even the Christ seeks out such dear ones to be with at, at this moment. And you see in that too how absolutely He entered into the incarnate state. That He walked in the same trials and the same difficulties that we do. He identified with us on the deepest level when He assumed our humanity on His divinity. He said, I'll, I'll suffer what they suffer. I know what that's going to be like. And in these closing hours, he doesn't live like a super being. He lives like he calls us to live in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. He has come in the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8.3 says. And, and he's dependent upon the Father's providence. And he lives just like we do. What a wonderful Savior who enters into the fullness of our humanity and knows it every step of the way. But here he is. It's Friday. He's arrived there in Bethany, and he's with his friends. And that's where he stays throughout the, the evening. Friday evening through Saturday evening, as I mentioned, is the Sabbath. So he would have rested on Friday night. 
Uh, no doubt he would have gone to synagogue on Saturday. He most likely would not have gone into Jerusalem. The reason being that Jerusalem was about two miles away, and the law prohibited you from traveling more than a half a mile on the Sabbath. That was a Sabbath day's journey. That would have been too far. And so on the Sabbath, he would have, as was his custom, we see throughout the the Gospels, he would have gone into the synagogue and there he would have heard someone open the scriptures and expound them for a bit. Uh, No doubt the person would have read them out loud like he did early in his ministry. And then they would have talked about that passage, whatever it was. They were reading out loud the scriptures that spoke of him as he sat there. Uh, Whoever spoke may have, in fact, made connections in that passage to the coming Messiah, but all the while not recognizing that Jesus was him. The person reading may have expounded and done a reasonable job of making a moral uh, lesson out of it, which, of course, is the, the great bondage of all false religion, assuming that somehow we can be righteous through morality and that we don't need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Or, or maybe he botched it all together. Maybe he read the passage and just completely bungled it. Didn't, didn't get the point at all. And there sits the Redeemer. I can tell you one thing the speaker didn't do. He didn't point to him and say, this is the one who fulfills what I've just read. And the humility of our Redeemer to sit, to worship, To honor his father on that Sabbath day, knowing that in a few short days, he will on the cross truly fulfill every one of those sacrificial types and be the one whose blood alone can cleanse sin. I'm amazed at his humility at this moment. And I'm also amazed that he doesn't rise up in some sense of anxiety, but he shows in this, how he obeys the Father as well. He doesn't, he doesn't act out in, a, in violating the Sabbath because of the urgency of the week. He lives by faith. And he takes the time and he separates himself and he waits upon his God. Once the Sabbath had ended, the dinner for him mentioned in John 12 is probably when that occurred. As a matter of fact, we can read it there, uh, chapter 12 again, picking up in, in verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him there, Martha, and served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Why was this ointment not sold? Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Mark 14 locates the place where this dinner took place, at the house of Simon the leper. 
Mary and Martha and Lazarus and others were invited there. And again, no doubt because this Simon had been one who had been cured from his leprosy. He couldn't have had a public meal uh, any other way. But he was no longer in that leprous state. And then we have Mary here, the sister of Lazarus, coming. She has this box of ointment. Judas argues that it's worth 300 denarii. That's roughly a year's wages. She takes this box of ointment and she breaks it and she anoints his head with it and then, and then it flows down to his feet and then she wipes his feet with her hair. And in this great outpouring of love for this Redeemer who had raised her brother from the dead, Maybe not clearly understanding that, that Christ was going to die. He had been telling the disciples all along, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I don't know how much she understood of that and how much she didn't. But she pours this out and when the others accost her, Jesus defends her. In one other account, he says, as a matter of fact, everywhere the gospel is preached, this account of what she's done for me is to be told as well. This was a a wonderful act that she had had done. It's astounding to me. I see that he was not finicky. He didn't say, hey, this breaks convention. This bothers me. He wasn't troubled by what she did like the others were. How he accepts our efforts at blessing him, even though at times... They're not very seemly. They're feeble. But, and then how he takes what she has done. And again, how much she knows and how much she doesn't, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But how he then takes her offering and weaves it into the eternal plan and says, she's done this in reference to my burial. How he takes our efforts at glorifying him and honoring him uses them and, and weaves them into the fullness of the outworking of his eternal plan. You would have thought at this moment he would be all self-absorbed, and he wasn't. <laughs> Instead, he, he defends her. And I see there, too, what an attitude of our hearts in love toward God ought to look like. It ought to look like nothing is too much to lavish on him. Nothing is too great to give Him our all, our hearts, our minds, our souls, our strength, our goods. What what is too precious? It's amazing how religion and stuffiness can creep in and rob us of that. Might we learn, like she did, to take every opportunity to honor Him with everything that we have because He then takes the opportunity to take those things and affirm us in them. He's so good toward us. And how we ought to count no time, no place inopportune for honoring our Christ because He never found it inopportune to meet our need. And how we ought to count nothing too valuable to lavish on Him because He did not count His own life too valuable to be poured out that we might be purchased from our death and our sin. The 
father thought it wasn't too expensive to give his son for us. And how, how sometimes we, we hold back from giving him our all because we, we think something is so precious. But some never come to the saving knowledge of Christ because, because it is the opinions of others and how they'll be thought of that makes it too difficult for them. It's too high a cost to acknowledge their sin and their need of a Redeemer. And here he is about to pour himself out in unfathomable ways. How, to, how we're to count no act of reverence or service for him too humbling because he, count no, he counted nothing too humiliating to go through in order that he might purchase our salvation. Oh, that just fits perfectly on that day. How he humbles himself. What a great Redeemer we have that the, the God of the universe robed in human flesh takes on flesh in its sinful likeness, not in its pre-fallen likeness, in its sinful likeness, and, and submits himself to these things. What an eventful Saturday evening that must have been. I can only imagine the discussions that went on around the table after all of this. Sunday, today, is the day of the triumphal entry. Today he'll rise early, as we're told in other portions of the narrative, and he'll head to Jerusalem. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 19 to catch the fullness of what's going on here. Picking up in verse 29, we read that when he drew near to Bethphage at Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here, and if anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it as just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, Well, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat on. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, and peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What a scene. This would have been a time for great temptation for him. It's great temptation to hang on the people's praise and then to think perhaps he can seize power by natural means, similar to the temptation he faced in the wilderness already with the enemy who said, just bow down and worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms. They're in my hand. I can do that. He had faced that already in the wilderness. So when this time came, he was pretty well prepared. But it would have been a tempting moment, no doubt. But you see, he had been in this position, this almost identical position, about two years earlier. 
John, in fact, breaks the ministry of Jesus up by virtue of the three Passovers that he participates in. This is the the third one. But at his first one, several years earlier, he had been through these similar things. John 2 records it this way, 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It was the same here. He's hearing the praises of the crowd, and and the the praises are proper. They should be worshiping him. As he says to the the, uh, Pharisees when they say, hey, this shouldn't be happening, he says, if they keep silent, the rocks will cry out. You don't know how right this is. You have no concept. But he... He teaches us what he knew at that moment as he does this by example, that you can't put stock in human praise. You can't. Oh, how, how we succumb to that all the time. How other people think about us, what they imagine us to be or not to be, or, or to be seen in less than the light we want to be depicted in. Human praise is fickle. He knows this. This is Sunday, but by Thursday, it's this same crowd that will be chanting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! He's not fooled. And if they weren't actively calling for His murder, there will be precious little protest against it. Not one of them, at least, will step up in the hour of His being accused and beaten and tried, not one of them will try to rescue him, the one they seem so eager to worship today. This day, Sunday, Palm Sunday. How wise the Savior is. And yet, how harmless his very words to us, to be wise as serpents but as harmless as doves. He doesn't lash out at them. He doesn't berate them. He doesn't rebuke them. He receives the praise, takes it as is proper, rebukes the the Pharisees who are so harsh on the people. How he had set himself to seek the Father's praise and no one else's. And couldn't be deterred by anything that they may have said. And as right as this praise was, as much as he deserved it, he knew it was ill-informed. They didn't really understand. He he knew that they didn't have the whole picture. They didn't really know who he was. And he's unmoved because as our Savior, he is unbought. How easily we're traded for human opinions. Not our Savior. Oh, I'm so glad he wasn't. If he was, he would have never gone to the cross. But he stands in that perfect place, serving the Father, fixed on Calvary and undeterred. And as if that weren't enough for that Sunday, he isn't done yet. Look what it says in the following verses, picking up in verse 41. Hearing all this praise, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but but now they're hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. He doesn't approach this like a disinterested stranger. Matter of fact, the Greek word that's used here by John when it says that he wept over the city is a strong word meaning that there was an, it was an audible weeping. It was visible. The people around him saw him responding. Here they were praising him and he's looking at the city and he literally bursts into tears. He had come at this point not to be a judge, but to be a Savior. He'll come again to be the judge, but now He's coming to be the Savior, and they don't see it. They don't know it. And and He's crushed as He thinks about the destruction that's going to take place, the judgment they're going to endure in in the days ahead for rejecting Him. And He... And He points this out in His language. The ones around Him can hear Him that they, that they were not understanding the day of their visitation. He knows the, the plan and the will of the Father, but the perishing of the people still breaks his heart. How he would so much more rather have compassion than condemnation, even when confronted with the very ones who are about to crucify him. Oh, what a Savior he is. What a wonderful Redeemer he is. I'm absolutely stunned at, at how he does this and, and what a heart of compassion he has. But it does, it does beg me to ask the question, have you recognized the day of your visitation? You've been visited with the gospel. Maybe not just today, but other days. You've been told about your sinfulness, your lost condition. And Christ has been preached to you as the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. He's been pointed to. He's the Redeemer. We've called to you and said, will you look to Him and be saved? Will you confess your sin and repent? Will you put your trust in His atoning work at Calvary alone? You've been visited, and and have you recognized the day of your visitation? Or can we still hear the echoes of His weeping from Jerusalem that day? Because you still sit unmoved that the Son of the living God would give Himself that you might have eternal life. Will you leave here today not having recognized that He's visited you with His good news again? You hear how compassionate He is for you. That He wants you not to perish in your sin, but to have everlasting life. That's our Redeemer. What a Sunday. Tomorrow, Monday, He's going to send His distractors over the edge. They aren't going to know what to do with Him. We're told in Luke 21, 37, that every day He was teaching in the temple. And in 38, that early in the morning, all the people would come and come into the temple and hear him. And then he would go back out to Bethany at night. He won't do that at the end of Tuesday night, but at Monday he still is. Uh, Turn to Mark chapter 11 for just a moment. 
again, we get some incredible insight into the events of this particular day. Mark 11 and picking up in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching and then when evening came they went out of the city he spends the day not only cleansing the temple but teaching in the process we've we've heard that we need the marriage of these two things when jesus teaches in the sermon on the mount and tells us to be careful to do good works but he says we're to do them in such a way that they glorify our father who's in heaven if they don't do that then they're just good works and anybody can do that it's useless But that's what he does. He not only comes and cleanses the temple, he teaches them. He tells them what he's doing and and what it's all about and why this is necessary. But you have to recognize he's been here before too. This is now the second cleansing of the temple. The first was recorded for us in John chapter 2. And not only is he back doing the same thing these few short years later, But he's, by virtue of it, teaching them things that he had taught all along in other contexts. For instance, keep your your finger in Mark and turn to Luke 11 for just a moment. Luke 11, 24. A somewhat enigmatic passage, perhaps, but I think it makes sense within the context of what we read here. The occasion was that he had been accused of casting out demons by the finger of Satan, which he denies and ties the unpardonable sin to that reality. But verse 24, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, he says, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. It's exactly what's going on here. No matter how great or even how divinely done, mere external moral reformation will fail every time. Even if the Son of God Himself cleanses the temple the first time, without the hearts of those there being regenerated and born again by the Spirit of God, He will come back in a couple of years and it will be worse than it was when He was there the first time. How much plainer can He tell us how futile human religion is, how futile it is for somehow to try and reform ourselves and gain salvation that way. We just clean the decks and then the enemy will come back in later And our latter condition will be worse than the first. Now he not only has to to get rid of the money changers and get rid of those who are selling the, the animals, now they've made the temple mound a shortcut for the Gentiles when they're carrying their goods from one place to another and charging them money for it. And no longer is the house of God a house of prayer for all nations. They've turned it into a money-making machine. 
and this is just, just a couple of years after he'd cleansed it the first time. You must be born again. You see, it's no coincidence that his cleansing of the temple in John 2 was the predecessor to his discussion with, with Nicodemus, who said, hey, we, we know that you must be sent from God, the person who would do all these things. And Jesus says to him, You're, you must be born again, you see. I can clean the temple, but that doesn't do anything. You must be changed by the Spirit of the living God. You've got to be transformed. And now he displays it in massive terms to this whole crowd. Shows them by example. And I can ask you, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Have you come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Have you known your sin and acknowledged it and confessed it and sought mercy at His feet and received it? And do you know what it is to be changed by the Spirit of the living God? That's what he's after here, you see. You can come into a church and get your act cleaned up. You can go to AA and stop drinking. You can go to all the other programs and and drop the outward, the external things. But if your heart has not been transformed by the Spirit of the living God, your latter end will be worse than your beginning. That's what he's saying. And he lays it out in this extraordinary fashion in front of them, such powerful Powerful gestures. Are you trusting in some moral uprightness of your own or even something you've learned from the church? Then listen and watch as Jesus shows them how futile anything less than the new birth is. He brings it home to them with startling clarity. And then he leaves as the as Luke twenty one says, and went out at night and lodged. Tuesday morning, he's back. Must have been a tumultuous day on Monday. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, all the the scribes, they're, they're in turmoil over what's happened the day before. And that's not wasted. They're going to accost him the very next thing. So Tuesday morning, he returns to the temple from Bethany, and this is his fullest round of discussions with the Jewish leadership Mark 11 tells us why the confrontation. They came to him, and they came again to Jerusalem, that's Jesus and the disciples, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you the authority to do them? They were indignant. And of course the simple answer is, whoever needs authority to do what's right. Whoever needs additional authority to do what's holy and just and pure. You don't need outside authority for that. But nevertheless, he deals with them one-on-one. He doesn't just dismiss them. I'm astounded at this. At this point, I would have assumed he would just say, you know what, you're all a bunch of idiots, none of you get it, just be gone. And he doesn't. He's so patient. He's so, so full of mercy. So working to the very last moment to instruct them in truth that he won't let it go even now. 
So he's going to have a, an extraordinary discourse with them. It's going to last all the way through Matthew 21 and 22 and 23. As a matter of fact, turn to Matthew 21 if you would. I'm going to run through this very rapidly, but give you some sense of the, the discussion and how it works. They confront him with this, and, and then Jesus responds to them, Well, tell you what, if you'll tell me by what authority John was preaching and teaching, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing things. And he trapped them. They, they said, well, they talked among themselves, and they said, if, Well, if we say that John was acting by God's authority, then Jesus can say to us, Well, then why didn't you listen to him? And if we say... Well, John was acting by his own authority. We're afraid of the people because the people will stone us. You see how different they were than how Jesus had demonstrated himself just the day before. And so as good politicians, they said, well, we don't know. Safe way out. And Jesus says, well, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you because you're not going to discern me either. And then he confronts them. As he works through this in verses 24 through 27, he confronts them on their refusal to acknowledge John as Christ's forerunner. They should have seen it in the Scripture. And John proclaimed it. I'm the one who's the voice in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And, and, and they missed it. So he confronts them on that. You, you didn't recognize, you didn't acknowledge that John was the fulfillment of being the forerunner of the Messiah. And then in 28 through 32, he, he talks about their refusal to acknowledge their sin in ignoring John's call to repent and to confess their sin and be baptized. You, you don't consider yourself sinners. And so, and so you've not responded to the call. And then in 33 through 44, he talks about their refusal to acknowledge him as the Messiah. Isn't he the Messiah? And they're, they're not getting it. They're not... Looking at that, and then in 22, 20, uh, yeah, in chapter, moving over into chapter 22, in 1 through 14, he talks about their refusal to acknowledge the gospel of the kingdom. All has been set. The master has said the table is ready, and he sent out invitations. And you're saying among yourselves, well, I've married a new wife and I can't come. Or I bought a piece of land. I need to look at a piece of dirt rather than come to God's banqueting table. I need, I need to go out and check out the cattle I bought. He says, here you are dismissing the call of the gospel of the kingdom to forsake all and follow the Christ. They leave. And another group steps right up. And, and, and here they are asking these questions. The, the next four questions I would have thought were so inane, especially in, with the time so close. This is Tuesday. He's, he's got two days left. And they come up, and, and, and one of them, thinking he's very bright, says, who should we pay taxes to? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus sees through the guys, and, 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 and in this moment says, uses it to teach them, don't you know what you're supposed to set supreme value on? Is what is meant for God. You can pay taxes to anybody. Who's, whose image is on the coin? It's Caesar's. Then give him his due. But give God his. I would have thought he'd just say at that moment, that is a stupid question with a wrong motive. Leave me alone. And he doesn't. 
What a Savior. Let me take even this stupid question and use it as a chance to educate you and teach you, point you toward spiritual reality. Next group up. Oh, they want to know about the resurrection. This is the Sadducees. And they put in front of him, again, this absolutely ludicrous thing. Well, there's this man, and he marries this woman, and then he dies, and then her brother, according to the law, marries her, and then this happens seven times, and now in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And you would have thought, at this moment, me, with divine power, I would have just went, you're gone. Why did you even bother? And he doesn't. And he says, oh, you don't understand either the word of God or the power of our God. There is a resurrection. And you've got to be living for that eternity and not just for the here and now. He takes the Sadducee at his very core belief system and begins to instruct him again in the, in the truth of salvation and to move him to, to look toward heaven. A third group comes up. There was a big debate in his day. The question is, well, what's the great command? You know, what's, what's kind of the granddaddy of all the commandments that if I keep this one thing, then I know everything else is going to be okay? And the Jews had many thoughts on this. Some of them said, well, it's the Sabbath. As long as you keep the Sabbath, you can sin in almost anything else, and you're going to be all right. But keep the Sabbath. And others said, no, it's, it's, it's circumcision. You've got to be sure you're circumcised as long as you're circumcised. And they went through various different chains like this. And he said, oh, you're, you're missing it, aren't you? The great command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbors yourself. All those external things can be done without a love toward God. But when you've got love toward God, you will, you'll be fulfilling the commandments. You've got it backwards. You're thinking that if you do the right thing, that will mean you're loving rather than knowing that you need to be changed inwardly so that loving is what produces the right thing. And he teaches again. And then he asks them a question. He says, how is it that you've missed in Psalm 110 that David said of the Messiah, who was born of his loins, that he was nevertheless his Lord? Don't you understand the incarnation? How great He is in moving them inexorably toward the truth of who He is, of His person and His work, and how they refuse it. It's then that He pronounces His seven woes in Matthew 23 to the, to the Pharisees. And he's not saying, look, a curse on your house. He's saying, don't you realize your woeful condition if these are true in you? Don't you realize how woeful it is in verses 13 through 14 to make salvation hard and to tie it to man's rules rather than to Christ himself? What a woeful condition to preach that kind of a gospel to people. To make, to make salvation a matter of people jumping through human hoops rather than humbling themselves before the living God and crying out for the mercy that He gives and the forgiveness that is free because of His shed blood. And in verse 15, isn't it woeful to make salvation the product of bondage to works 
What a woeful thing to be caught in that system and to teach others the same thing. And in 16 through 22, it's woeful to be systematizing ways to break God's laws through inventing technicalities, which is what they were doing. Can't you see the twistedness of your heart, your own woeful condition in this? And in 23 through 24, isn't it woeful when you are a person who's caught up on majoring on the minors? You'll swallow a camel but strain at a gnat because you can't discern what is really important and what isn't from God's perspective. How people are caught up in those things. And how woeful it is in 25 through 26 to put the emphasis on externals and actions rather than internals in the heart's true condition. To separate those two as though somehow you can have the one without the other. And in 27 through 28, it's woeful to live in the rank hypocrisy of claiming to be alive when you know full well you're dead. And then in 29 through 36 claiming to be superior to their ancestors. We wouldn't kill the prophets like our ancestors did, and we've built up these great tombs to honor the prophets. And yet he says, but you're going to kill me. You're worse than your fathers, and you claim to be their superiors. What a woeful condition you're in. Here's this Christ gospelizing them. Exposing their sin and then standing there because he's the one who can save them. You see? How he opens up false religion in all of its various parts. It's a, a complete exposition. And every moment of this day, he is teaching and teaching and teaching everyone alike, calling men to see the real way of salvation contrasted with the false religion that had been constructed out of the, the types and the shadows of the old covenant. And then we find out that it is this Tuesday night that he doesn't return to Bethany. The time is too short. Tonight he'll go and he'll sleep on the Mount of Olives. Wednesday. Scripture doesn't record anything about Wednesday individually. Must have been another busy day full of teaching, however. Because again, as we've read in Luke 21, every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. How he must have been reinforcing, working through all of this truth, preaching to them, teaching them. He is so poured out. Instead of hiding and being inaccessible, he just stays there. It's fascinating to me that he does not pass up the urgency of the moment but continues to seize upon it even though he knows how short it is to say I've got to continue to teach the truth. Thursday. Thursday is the final day. It's the preparation for the Passover. Four things consumed him in that day, or particularly in that evening. We have every reason to believe he would have gone back to the temple to teach in the morning, but would have gone 
for the preparation which they did in Jerusalem for the Passover meal. And he's going to do four things that, that night. The first is he's going to institute the Lord's Supper. And at that moment, we're going to partake of it tonight when we gather back here. And we're going to do it in this very context. What he did was he established that his substitutionary death is to form the corner piece of Christian worship until he returns. Everything is about his death, burial, and resurrection. Everything. And then, he's going to wash the disciples' feet. Why at that moment? Why at that moment he didn't say, look, it's just a few hours. Why don't you do something for me just this once? And he doesn't. He takes off his robe and he goes one by one and he washes their feet even in the face of their objections and and teaches them again in the midst of it that this is to inform all of our interaction with one another, humility and service in Christ. Wonderful. What a Savior this is. (laughs) And then he's going to take more time to teach them yet. (laughs) Picking up in John 13 all the way through John 16, he's going to give a whole series of discourses to them after he washes their feet then he's going to talk about the fact that one of them is going to betray him and then he's going to say this new commandment i give to you that you love one another as i have loved you and he's showing them this love in the most magnificent way imaginable throughout this this week and especially at this moment and then he foretells peter's denial and caps it by saying but but nevertheless let not your heart be troubled You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many apartments. If it weren't so, would I have told you this? I'm going away to prepare a place for you that when I come again, you, you may be with me. He tells them that he's the, the way, the truth, and the life. It's in this portion where he spends most of his time talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit to be sent when he ascends on high where he takes the time to discuss the fact that he's the true vine and they are the branches. How he talks about their need to abide in the Father's love because all of religion becomes the temptation to make the Father love us by virtue of our our performance rather than to live in his love and let our lives be lived out of the joy of that position. He tells them how they're going to be hated by the world. And then he tells them even more about the Holy Spirit and what he's going to do when he comes and then how their sorrow is going to be turned to joy and, and lastly that he has overcome the world. And then he goes to Gethsemane. And he prays. He pours out his heart and intercedes for the disciples and for all those who will believe on him through their testimony. That's you and me today you trust Christ. And he intercedes and pours himself out with great drops of blood and with agony as he commits himself to the will of the Father. 
And then the betrayer comes and kisses him. And he's taken away. What a Savior. What a Savior. While he could have been so filled with self-pity, he is absolutely selfless this entire week. There's a, there's a word that in going back to rehearse these events struck me is totally absent, absent from the vocabulary of God. It's the word panic. God never panics. And Christ walks through this week in the calm of knowing He is fulfilling the Father's will, stepping every step deliberately, speaking every word so cautiously, faithfully, sweetly, humbly, amazingly. There's no hurriedness in Him. He doesn't take a, a day off and say, well, you know, it's just got to happen. You know, I just, I'm just all caught up with anxiety until this gets worked out. He is so absolutely submitted to the Father and walking in the fullness of the Spirit as He discharges all that's been set in front of Him. What a Savior. What a Savior. Can we deny Him today? Can you deny Him today? And say, oh no, I won't own my sin. I won't look to Him. I won't, I won't acknowledge my need of His forgiveness or of His atoning substitutionary death at Calvary. No, I'm, I'm going to set all that aside. Can you do that today? Look at Him. Look at Him. Look at Him. All done to fulfill the Father's will that, that salvation might be ours, that all who believe in Him might have everlasting life, to live with that Savior for eternity, to be with the One who gave Himself for us. Oh, what a Redeemer He is. That's all I wanted you to do is catch a better glimpse of our Redeemer. That's it. That's the big point. See Him. Be caught up with Him. Be mesmerized by Him. Be so fully absorbed with Him till your heart is melted for being in His glory. See this great Redeemer who in a few short days was going to give His life. Today was the day He entered the temple triumphantly. Next Sunday, the resurrection. What a Redeemer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for putting divine love on display in Christ. I know that it's popular in our day to say that Christ died merely as a, an example. That's not true, though there are examples in it. Or that he died merely to show us how much He loved us. That's not true. Me dying doesn't show anybody else how much I love them. No, only, only if His death was to purchase our salvation 
and His resurrection to make the way for our justification. Only there is the Gospel. And may we glimpse it again through clearer eyes today and see the wonder and the awe and the splendor of this great Redeemer and see how much more worthy He is of our praise of our devotion, of our love. And to be conquered by Him. Let that be our testimony. And let it go out into all the world, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.